Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. What is music for? And how is Robert Glasper making it? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. When I was writing the most important article of my career, for about 48 hours straight, I was playing a Robert Glasper tune on repeat. I can't write in silence. I need some kind of noise, usually music. So about four years ago, When I had to crank out the first draft of my Time cover story on the film Black Panther in two days, I had to focus. And I found a live instrumental cover of Janae Aiko's The Worst from Glasper's 2015 album Covered. And still, I think it has the most perfect melody for a writing song I've ever come across. A couple months later, I got the chance to sit down with the jazz pianist and band leader and chat with him before a concert in Alabama. And to this day, Glasper remains the funniest dude I've ever interviewed. But his humor and boldness aren't the only reasons why I wanted to talk with him again on this show. Glasper's Black Radio 3, the third edition of his series of masterwork LPs, drops tomorrow. It already has a Grammy-winning song on it. Better Than I Imagined, with her and Michelle and Dege Ocello, his fourth Grammy win overall. Black Superhero, another single that's been pre-released, is already a hit. Being that he's worked with virtually every influential R&B, soul, and jazz artist working today, and has one of the most unique sounds I've ever heard, and I've heard a lot of jazz, I want to know what inspired him and what continues to inspire him. What moves him, for example, to write such an empowering and uncompromising song like Black Superhero? Our own kind took nip from us. Money still reading God we trust. Truthfully, we envy, so why we so envy? And how does he approach the process of creating music that is both intensely collaborative and unmistakably his own? Robert Glasper, thank you for joining us on Vox Conversations. Thank you for having me, good sir. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Rob, why do you call the albums Black Radio? Um, Well, initially... Me and Most Def wrote a song together called Black Radio, and it was about the black box in an airplane. Basically, no matter what happens to the airplane, if it crashes, it catches on fire, the black box is always intact, and you can always mm-hmm. get information from the black box. And, you know, we were saying that's how we feel about black music. You know what I mean? About music, good music. Um, will always stand the test of time. No matter what happens, you'll always have that that good music. And then from that, it just kind of spawned off to all these the other different meanings. You know, people come to me and tell me what their meaning of Black Radio is. Yeah, no, I definitely had my own interpretation when the first album came out, which is like, okay, here's sort of this amalgamation of all the different things that I hear on Black Radio. But also, I mean, on that first album, you had Smells Like Teen Spirit 
covered. So exactly. it, it speaks exactly. to, you know, I guess those private school kids, hello, uh, exactly. who enjoyed a little bit of rock music. <laughs> and exactly. it says, hey, you know, this is part of black radio, too. Exactly. Because rock music is black music. And people forget that, you know, there's so many genres that we've given to the world. And sometimes you forget whose genre it is, where the origin comes from. You know what I mean? So without Chuck Berry, without Little Richard, you know, you wouldn't have a Nirvana. You know what I mean? (laughs) To do teen spirit. So, but all music is inclusive and it's beautiful. So it's not just about doing certain kind of songs because the house of black music has many rooms. Amen. And that's what I try to accomplish when I do black radio albums, you know, just go in, go in and out of those rooms seamlessly without any, you know, traffic. Yeah, interference. Traffic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I kind of want to go back to the beginning of how you started to learn about what black music was. It was, mm-hmm. first of all, it was right there in the home, right there for you, right? One thousand percent, the crib. My mother was a singer and a piano player. She played enough to accompany herself. You know what I mean? Whenever she had to do like jazz gigs, she would do just piano and her herself accompanying wow. herself. She did those piano bar gigs like maybe two, three times a week. But at the same time, she also had a full band when she did, you know, R&B nights at R&B clubs and funk and disco. All, like, my mom played at a barn. She did country music. She played at an actual barn. We're from Texas. So, you know, she <laughs> actual barn. And then on Sundays, she was the music director at church. I always, I used to tease her. I'd be like, you're actually Whoopi Goldberg and Sister Act, Mom. You have to think about what you're singing. It's not just quacking. This is this is rejoicing. I mean, you come to our house, you you know, you walk into my house, you you might hear Shirley Caesar, you might hear Ella Fitzgerald, you might hear Liza Minnelli. She loved Broadway. You know what I mean? So it was just mm-hmm. it was all over the place. The it, it was the music in the house is very, very eclectic. And so that's kind of it spilled on to me, you know, so I'm a musical mutt the way I am because of my mom. When did you start playing piano? Later than most people think. Uh, <laughs> when you're as good as I am, you know, you, uh, you, you, you start at two. You know, you start at five. That, that, that's what you hear. Right. But I, I started playing with one finger at 11 at church. My mom was the music director and she played the piano, but they had a little organ in the corner. Small church, you know. And, and I used to go and just learn songs on the organ with one finger. That's literally how I learned how to play. And, yeah, I started when I was 11 years old. Wow. I realized once I started, I realized that was my gift when I was, like, 14. I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Because I didn't even really tap into it until in a real way until I was, like, 14. You know, once I got cut from the basketball, once I sat on the bench the whole year from the (laughs) basketball team. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) If you'd only made the team, how... how, If I would have made the team, if I would have... Absolutely. That's why it's it's very important to realize you suck early in, in, in life. It, whatever you suck at, realize it very early so you can realize what you're good at. Uh, now, you are tall, but I don't know if you NBA tall. So maybe I'm that not would, NBA it, tall. I'm not NBA tall. It wasn't even the height. I just didn't have it. It just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I, I, dr- I always say I drug that same bench over to the piano. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I went from there. That's why my mom kept me in piano lessons. She was like, you can play. Because I was supposed to go to a, high, a performing arts high school in ninth grade. I, I auditioned and I mm. made it. But I didn't want to go. I wanted to go to the regular high school and play ball. So my mom was like, okay, you can go and play ball, but you're going to still take piano lessons. Because she knew in the back of her mind, this ball thing ain't going to work out, but I'm going to be supportive. Right. Yeah. So, you know. You're growing up, you know, obviously you're listening to the radio as well. So how did black radio, actual black radio, uh, play into the development of your tastes? I mean, growing up, I mean, I had no choice. My dad was a Luther Vandross, Earth, Wind & Fire, Anita Baker, Frankie Beverly. That was my dad's world. And the whole neighborhood would hear that. My dad was black radio for the neighborhood. On Saturdays, when he washed the white walls on his tires, he would <laughs> he put the garage up and he had the speakers in the garage and he just blast out the songs. You know what I mean? And I had a drum set in the garage and I used to play that along with the records he was spinning. So between that side and then 
my mom, my mom really loved Ella Fitzgerald. She loved jazz. She loved Broadway. Like I said, she loved Liza Minnelli. She loved Bette Midler. She, you know, in the gospel side, it was just like I had, I kind of had all of it, you know, just circling around. I kind of had no choice but to be in it. But the cool thing is she didn't, my family never forced me to do music. Mm. They just placed the things there. My mom played piano. So we had a piano in the house and a keyboard and it was light and whatever I wanted to do. You know what I mean? That's why I didn't really start playing piano for real until I was like 11, one finger, because I was really into sports all the way up to 14. I was hardcore into sports, like competitions, track, then like basketball, then football. Mm. And then once that ran out, then it was like, okay, let's tap into the things that, you know, have kind of been given to me. Yeah, for some of us, it runs out earlier than others. Um, <laughs> yeah, yep. but I want to get to the Black Radio albums. It's the 10th anniversary of the first one. I kind of want to know what did you accomplish maybe with those first two uh, that you said, okay, you know what? I still need a third one to try to do something different. To be honest, when I did the first one, I wasn't planning on making a second one. Oh, I just planned on doing the one and like that was it. But then it did so good. I did much better than I was thinking it was going to do. I thought it was going to be like an underground, cool album that some people might know about. Because this is my first time really crossing over into R&B world as far as mm-hmm. doing a record in that kind of world and kind of, you know, having those guests and stuff. Right. But we won that R&B album of the year Grammy. And then it was like, oh, okay, now things are different. And now we have to move different. So I have to do a part two because people are looking for it. And now, because I won that Grammy, I can probably get some of the artists that I don't know. Because I knew everybody on Black Radio 1. Those were texts. Those were easy. Right. You know, those are my friends. <laughs> but Black Radio 2, half of the people I didn't know. I was just fans of them. You know, I didn't know Brandy. I didn't know Faith. You know what I mean? There's a few people in there I, did, I didn't know. But I, right. I didn't know. You know, so I, but it was one of the things where now they've heard of me, for sure. Because I was the talk of R&B hip-hop world when I won the Grammy because everybody was like, who is this? <laughs> you know, like, what? Who is this? Uh, funny story. There's an amazing producer named Wattwaller. Rockwaller told me when they when they said all the names, Tyrese stood up before they said any names. Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and they called my name, and he was honest. He was like, can I cuss on here? Hell yeah. Him and Tyrese like, who the fuck is Robert Glasper? What the fuck is this? <laughs> Who the fuck is Robert Glasper? And so he told me that he that, that happened. And Ty- Tyrese and him were like heated. Like, who the fuck? But he said, bro, when I went home, I did my homework. And he said, you deserved it. That record was dope. You're saying that like because I knew about the album before it won the Grammy, I'm actually cool? Is that what you're trying to imply? <laughs> Absolutely. You were in definitely the cool kids. In the, in the right. cool kids squad, for sure. <laughs> okay, but that's yeah, but, uh, that's on that's on the record. <laughs> that's on the record for sure, for sure. So when that happened, I had to do a part two, and that's what it was. You know, we had to follow up, and then we follow up, and then we won another Grammy. But then I was like, I don't want to do another Black Radio. I was like, we did two, and they both won Grammys. I feel like let's stop where we're ahead, kind of thing, you know. So that's why it took me eight years to do another one because. For years, people have been asking for it. For years and years, eight, seven, eight years asking for it. But then when the pandemic hit, it was kind of like, okay, you know what I mean? Mm. So so the pandemic was the reason? or w- Was there any other no. impetus? No, the the song I did with her, the uh, mm. Better Than I Imagine, was kind of pretty much the the starting, the jumping point off for, for Black Radio 3. So tell that story because it's a really interesting story about how that song came to to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of amazing <laughs> when I heard the story. Man, so I've I've known Gabby is her name. Uh I've known her for since she was like I met her when she was like 13. Right. And she's always been just super focused and super talented and all these things. And it's just been it's been like a super amazing to see her progression and see how great she's great things she's doing. But I scored this movie called The Photograph. Mm-hmm. And we went to the premiere. And, and her, she did the ending song for the movie. And she was sitting in front of me. And when the movie ended, she turned around. She was like, I'm so inspired by that score. What are you doing right now? I was like, uh, nothing. She was like, let's go to the studio. I was like, let's go. So we went to the after party, did that, and then immediately went to the studio. Right. 
the first thing I sat down, I don't know what, I've never played it before. It was just sometimes I sit down and just start playing something. And and I started playing that. She's like, what's that? And I was like, I don't know. And she said, keep going. <laughs> Told the engineer to loop it. She started writing. And that's the song that came out that night. I've been thinking about magic, happen, action, baby, we never lasted. Magic, madness, maybe you was just gassing. But it was better than I imagined. Drastic acting to you, we was just practice. Sadness, masking, hated you with a passion. Had it granted, baby, I didn't cap it. Cause it was better than I imagined. Thought it'd be worse, cause it hurts me. But still, I can't see myself with no one else. Cause it was better than I imagined. I threw, I was like, we need something else on it. I threw Michelle Dega Cello on it later. I, I just told Michelle, do whatever you feel. You know what I mean? And, and she came with that spoken word thing, talking. Her voice is mm. always magic. And we put that out as a single. And like you said, one best what like progressive r&b song or something like that and so that was like the beginning point it was like everybody was like yo we have to do black radio now even before the grammy win like once we put the song out and people start the reception we were getting from it, it was like you know what let's just do black radio three let, 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 let's quit playing let's go ahead and do it now especially it's been, it's been the pandemic people need music right and i know music heals and i felt i felt i had a responsibility to do that so now, it's also coming out not just in the midst of a pandemic and, you know, created in the midst of that pandemic, but also, I mean, the first two Black radio albums were coming at the tail end of the Obama era. The country is in a whole different place emotionally, politically. One thousand percent. How did that influence your development of this album? Because you could have just ignored all that, but you didn't. Absolutely. And I, that's funny because I, I have that constant battle I think all artists probably have that battle because the reality is a lot of people use your music to escape what's going on, you know, mm -hmm. to escape the police brutality, the shootings, the president, the this, the that that's happening in the world. They just want to hear music because everything else is in your face the whole time. You know, IG, Facebook, the news, the radio, you know. So as artists, we have to make a choice. Do we also talk about it too? Or do we not talk about it? Do we talk about it a little bit? Where do we talk about it on the album? So it flows. And, you know, so much has happened since the last Black Radio, George Floyd, and I just felt like I have to say something. So let me address the elephant in the room first. So if you choose to skip the first two, you may, and the rest of the album just plays. And I felt like that was the best way to do it because I had to say something. And at the same time, if you don't want to hear it, you can skip. I mean, you had a previous album called Fuck Your Feelings. Um, I'm not sure, you, like how concerned you are about getting, you know, people <laughs> judging you. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> not at all. But I, I like my album to be able to be, I like for people to play it all the way through and just feel like it's something you can put on and let it play. And it was just like, that is my fucking feelings vibe. The first thing you're going to hear is this. You never heard the album before. So when you put it on, this is what you're going to hear. I heard him call out. I heard him call for his mother, and I didn't even call my mother. I wanted to avoid talking about the elephant in the room, the pig on my neck, the devil on detail. We were born of a people who were torn from their people for the root of all evil. From it sprung the trunk, the branches, and the fruit of all evil. Unless they need you, they act as if they don't see you, besiege you, and tell you to cooperate as if it's something you agreed to. But for a criminal's constitution, nothing's illegal. So, I mean, you have Amir Suleiman, this poet and actor, you know, just, just yep. really just giving it to us in this, in this first track, as opposed to what you had at the beginning of the first two Black Radio albums, when it's more of this kind of like, okay, here's this collaborative effort, and this is kind of the sound of it coming together before you actually hear the tunes. Mm -hmm. And... and, and and I forgot even before that on Black Radio 2, the first song was I Stand Alone with Common. And I had Michael Eric Dyson speaking at the end of Stand Alone. So I always try to sneak something in somewhere, whatever I feel is needed at that time. Because sometimes music doesn't cut it. Sometimes you have to say it. And it's just like, hey, here it is. You know, because sometimes you snap. There are people to this day 
that don't know what Happy Birthday by Stevie Wonder is really about. They just think it's a Happy Birthday song. <laughs> that kills me because, I mean, it's right there in the lyrics. <laughs> just looks, but nobody but, knows. Nobody knows the lyrics. All they know is Happy Birthday to you. They don't. They, yeah. When it gets to the verse, everybody starts mumbling, including myself. Well, <laughs> it's a lot of words. And a lot it is of a lot of words. It's a lot of words and a lot of verses, and also like people know like that that refrain is just sort of like okay, this is the blackest way to sing Happy Birthday. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. so you go to any black birthday party and Happy Birthday. That's it. I know where I am now. Absolutely. <laughs> but you know, but he he's the master of that. He's the master of giving you a message through music. But sometimes what happens is some people just the music's so good. You know, some people get the message and some people don't. That's why sometimes it's like, let me just say this. <laughs> right. I mean, people may not be able to, like, quote the lyrics of Black Superhero. Right. But they'll hear Killer Mike and Big Crit, you know, on this track and they will remember that title. And, you know, I can imagine it becoming a theme for a yeah. lot of people. Sometimes you just need to be empowered uh, by even something that you don't fully understand. Yeah, for sure. Was that your motivation for putting it right there at the top? Yep, absolutely. That's my motivation for it. And even if you don't understand all the lyrics, the rapping and whatever, the hook is so every block, every hood, every city, every ghetto needs a black superhero. And you can take that and run with it, whatever that means for you. You know what I mean? Like, I love doing that. I love having some kind of message but or, or, or a phrase or something, but mm -hmm. you can take it and use it for what it means to you because that may be stronger. How, how you use it may be stronger for you in your life than what I intended it for, for you. You know what I mean? I can make some chicken and tell you to make a chicken sandwich out of it, but you might want to add potatoes and broccoli, or you might make a, make a stew out of it, or you might, whatever it is, you can do or what you, you want with it. you put some Nashville hot spice on it. I mean, whatever. Come on, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so Black Superhero comes together. Shine is the second single from that from the album that was released around the same time you were doing this residency at the blue note yeah that's 33 nights and 66 shows during a pandemic dude like how did you i know how did I you know. get through that i have no idea and what is that like for those of us who have no clue <laughs> <laughs> i literally was a zombie i have no idea how that worked out because honestly because i've done it twice before matter of fact i did more shows before it was like 70 something shows mm. But this time around, they were like, hey, you want to do it now? And I almost said no, because I'm like, okay, every, you know, it's a pandemic. I'm like, people aren't going to come out and everybody has to be vaccinated. It wasn't like you could show, oh, you got a test yesterday and you can get in. No. And I didn't think it was going to have the same effect as the other ones and be full of people like the other ones. Mm -hmm. But it it was full every night. Every night was sold out. It was amazing. It was, and it was the good thing. It, it was medicine for me because I hadn't played in front of an audience in something like a year and a half or something. You know what I mean? And just being in there and watching the people's faces and feeling the spirit of the people while I'm playing, like they needed it and I needed it. We both were like, ah, oh. just a simple cracking a joke in front of an audience. It's like, because I was sick of trying to crack a joke streaming to no one. You know what I mean? Like it was terrible. Right. <laughs> Terrible. It's, it's different when you can't hear the laughter. <laughs> Absolutely, one thousand percent. You don't know if you're bombing or not. So it was, it was, it was all those things. It was something I really needed, and it was cool to see so many guest artists pop up. There were, you know, I had I had some guest artists that were on the bill, but there were so many people that just popped up and just came to jump on and be a part of the experience. And it's always, it's always fun. Matter of fact, Hurricane. Her popped up on me. We did better than I imagined for the very first time ever. Wow! Because I had Michelle, I had Michelle Degocello as my guest for one for a few of the days. You know what I mean? And it was amazing. Speaking of collaboration, man, what is your gift for getting all these people to collaborate with you? What do you think it is about you and your music that draws them in? I think people enjoy playing with me. I think they enjoy the openness. I think they enjoy what I bring to it. Um, I think they just enjoy the overall experience because of all the different, you know, sides of me. I have the hip hop side, the jazz side, the R&B side, and it's all wide open and we can do whatever and just cool things come out of it. You know what I mean? And I think, you know, with how I am, my personality, they have fun with it. And, you know, so I think it's just it's just that and it's high level. It's fun and it's high level. You know, if you're a basketball player, 
being on the all-star team because I keep the best musicians. The mm-hmm. musicians I have are the musicians' favorite musicians. So it's a win-win all the way around. So I think it's just that and just a cool experience that they would just like to be a part of, you know? The all-star team metaphor is apt because you with Joe Scott, for instance, uh, having you with Nora Jones, of all, you know, and just seeing on this particular album, I mean, hell, you got uh, you with like Q-Tip and Esperanza Spaulding. First of all, if you don't know about Esperanza Spalding, get get on that. Absolutely. But those two are not necessarily going to be on an album together unless it's right. a Robert Glasper album. Right. And that's that <laughs> that to me is that's that to me is what the the gift is. It's that. It's the it's the bringing of the people together too and the, you know, cuz I I brought some people on stage together that would probably never be on stage together ever. Yeah. You know, funny thing, people don't know me and Nora knew each other since high school. We just, we went to jazz camp together. Huh. Dallas, yeah, I'm I'm from Houston, Texas. She she's from Dallas, and I went to the performing arts school in Houston. She went to the performing arts school in Dallas. Our high schools were rivals. Oh, okay. Because at my high school, we had Beyonce. She was in my class. Beyonce <laughs> was two years younger than me, actually. So I was Whoa. a senior. Yeah, and Nora at her school, she had that. Roy Hargrove went to her school, and Erica Badu went to her school, and you know, so we had a little rivalry. But anyway, we went to a jazz camp in Denton, Texas, which is a few hours away from both of us. And that's where we met. And then the next time I saw her, she was in New York and she had won all them Grammys. But we kept in touch. And it was just like one of those things where, yo, you want to do this? She's like, oh, man. Yeah, you know, it kind of worked out. You do like a versus album, like the Dallas High School versus the Houston High School. I know, I know, right? With all the talent stacked up. (laughs) With all the talent, right. (laughs) You know, like, you know, (laughs) Civil War. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you've introduced me to some of these artists' music without even without even knowing it. I mean, you covered The Worst by Janae Aiko yeah. um, before I even heard that song. And I ended up using it back in 2018. I told you the story once before. I ended up using that as a, like sort of my rhythm song. I like to write to music. And nice. I was writing an article about Black Panther for Time Magazine. And I had two days to write that, and I needed to focus. And right. bro, I just I just played that straight on repeat for oh, two days. Right. I, when that song came out, I thought it was dope. You know what I mean? And I, what I did, I asked my niece. You know, hey, what's the what's the coolest song these days that y'all are listening to? What song do you like? And she told me the worst, and I was like, I love that song too. Perfect. Let's go. So, boom. <laughs> <laughs> That Robert Glasper track I had on repeat back in 2018, it was a cover. And he's been behind some amazing covers over the years, including some surprising choices, like the 80s standard that appears on Black Radio 3. I'll ask Robert about that song and about what recording covers does for him after a short break. I've heard you, you know, transform those kinds of, you know, songs into really like just pure Robert Glasper sound. Let me say you do the same thing with Everybody Wants to Rule the World on this album. I'm kind of interested to know in that light, though, what does music do for you? Um, what is maybe transforming those works do for you? It's like, uh, I feel like it's just repackaging a gift that somebody already loves. <laughs> it's like, you know what I'm saying? It's like me and Layla just formed this thing where, you know, Black Radio 1, she did a cover. She did Cherish Today. Mm-hmm. Black Radio 2, we did a cover. We did Jesus Children of America, Stevie. And then I was like, let's just keep the tradition going. I was literally on my way to the studio and it came on in the car. And I was like, oh, snap, I forgot about this song because I was looking for a cover to do. I just didn't know which one I was going to do. Right. And sometimes, a lot of times, it happens just like that. Something comes on, it's like, that's the one. Boom, there it is. That's one of those covers everybody knows, but nobody really covers it. Yeah. As soon as I got in the the studio, 
I worked on the arrangement. I knew what it was going to be in my head when I when I got there. I was like, we record, done. Wow. One of the things that you and I talked about back in Alabama was, you know, of course, we're at the opening of the memorial and the museum. The yeah. That Equal Justice Initiative uh, opened. Yeah. And, of course, they have this giant concert. I'm just trying to set the scene for people listening. Giant concert. There's Rob. There's Kirk Franklin. The Roots. Uh, Dave Matthews. Usher. Usher. Common. Uh, and then, you know, special guests. <laughs> they just draw Stevie Wonder. It's like, oh, well, yeah, Stevie's yeah. here. Yeah. That concert was, in, you know, obviously incredible. But what I think was really interesting about it was the context of it and something you would mention was something like music as medicine. Absolutely. You know, this is a moment where we could all just kind of been walking around this memorial and feeling sorrowful all weekend. Right. And, you know, this concert really just kind of brought everybody's spirits up in a way that I think is really interesting. What, how do you feel like music did that for you maybe growing up? Oh man. Music was like my safe place. Like uh, I used to, I mean, happy or sad, I used to lock myself in my aunt's record room and play Michael Jackson off the wall. I used to unfold it, mm-hmm. lay it down on the ground. It was literally like therapy to me. It was like therapy for me. Even if I got a whooping or I got in trouble for something, yeah. we lived with my aunt at the time. I would go in there and put on off the wall, unfold it, put it off the wall. It would just make everything better. And I could, I could be in there for hours. And I didn't know why, but that, that's what made me feel good. And then, mm-hmm. you know, later on becoming a musician, I realized that was always in there. Yeah, music music is definitely medicine. It definitely heals. For me, that's that's the best medicine. Mm-hmm. That's why I do what I do because, you know, I know what my music has done for other people. People have told me in person and online, you know, all the things that my music has done for them in their life. And that's how I know it's real. Well, yeah. Life ain't so bad at all if you live it off the wall. Not at all. <laughs> Absolutely. Funny part of but I forgot that concert, man. I remember me, Usher, and Kirk Franklin sang background for Stevie. Yes. We were on Which stage. Which is wild. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was like the ending song, you know, and everybody kind of came out. But and me, her, Kirk, and Usher were together, and we were doing the backgrounds. And we looked to the right. We saw he had a teleprompter. We said, oh, what is happening here? Stevie got a teleprompter. What is happening, Stevie? You know, that was so, that was so. Just to keep the conspiracy theories alive. To keep it going. <laughs> to keep it going. You know, Stevie will joke about it, too. Just that Stevie loves to joke about that kind of stuff. No matter if he's recording original music, collaborating with artists like Q-Tip and Esperanza Spaulding, or even covering Nirvana, Robert Glasper is sculpting a sound that is fully, completely, 100% original. I'll ask him about that Glasper sound and how it came about after one last quick break. I'm just thinking about this kind of really original sound that you create and that you like you manifest these other works and your original work. You like mm-hmm. created this really original sound. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to like describe it, but I really just need people to hear it uh, for themselves to understand. How did that develop? What does it do for you to hear that sound, that thematic Robert Glasper style throughout all of your pieces? You know, it's funny. I remember the first time I heard Glasper sound. Mm-hmm. I was in college, and my boy came to me at the school. He was like, yo, I was in rehearsal last night, and the music director was talking to us, and he was kind of like, and he said, you know, I wanted to be like kind of like that, that, that Glasper sound. And he told me that. He said, yo, you have a sound. I was like, oh, snap. I never heard nobody say that. It came from somewhere else. Somebody was describing it without me being there. And I was like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, what gave me my sound was the fact, uh, I I remember even in high school when I would make my compositions, when I write songs, the students and the other students, even my jazz director would be like, your songs don't sound like other jazz songs. You know, like you don't, you don't use the same formulas on the jazz songs. But I used a lot of the harmony from my church upbringing and my R&B upbringing. 
in the jazz world when I wrote music. Right. My very first album I ever produced was a gospel album huh. for a local choir in Houston called Missouri City Mass Choir. My mom was a director. I produced it and wrote all the songs. It's a legit recording. Wow. And that's the first album I've ever produced. So writing compositions really can help you scope who you are and what your sound is. Because if you keep playing other people's music, you're like especially cats in jazz schools, you know, because they they kind of stuff standards down your throat. Mm. This is what you got to know. You got to know all these songs. If you want to be a jazz musician, you got to know all these other people's songs and know that. But they don't really teach you how to be yourself or how to find who you are musically. You know what I mean? And so composition is that learning what you gravitate to, what kind of chords you gravitate to, what kind of melodies you gravitate to, what kind of vibes, you know what I mean? And so the earlier you start writing and you'll, you'll work it out, you'll eventually end up with your sound, but it's, Hopefully, everybody can't. Everybody's not blessed to have a sound. I tell you that people are good, great musicians, but everybody doesn't have a sound. But that's the to me, that's the way you try to find your sound and just being honest as possible. You know what I mean? In that, yeah. so I was just honest about my upbringing and what I liked, and that's kind of kind of came together and it ended up being that. I'm curious. You mentioned the, the the teacher that that helped you identify that, or at least pointed it out to you. I know that experience from a writer's point of view. How powerful it is to have somebody tell you that, hey, you have a style, you can yeah. write, you can do this. Who was telling you, if anyone, that you couldn't do it? Oh, there were there's many jazz police. <laughs> you know, for sure, there's the jazz police. There are people who would be like, no, you gotta. You can't do that. You can't mix that with that. Or you shouldn't You shouldn't do that. Or I don't like when you do that. I don't even know them people's names. Those are just random people. And that's how I classify them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, the random people who don't know my purpose or don't know what I'm, what my gift is or what I, why I'm here. And so it's not for you. That's just my thing. Oh, this is not for you then. Precisely. That, that person's for you, but I'm not for you. And not everything has to be for everyone. Nope. <laughs> Not at all. It's not supposed to be. Nothing's for everyone except air. <laughs> air, air, and food. Food. I would throw in there. Food. Air, air, and air, and food. I'm gonna go with yeah. you on that. Air and yeah. food. You know. So it's a lot of that. It's a lot of putting the blinders on, like like the horses when you're in horse race. You gotta put the blinders on. Just go your path. You can't be looking around a lot of times. Right. You know what I mean? And that's kind of how I had to be because there are definitely a lot of haters in that world. But the, the thing is, too, I, I'm a studied musician, so I. The one thing you have to know about that is I know how to play standards. I learned that. Mm. So when I talk about mixing music and playing R&B and mixing it with this, I'm not saying don't be authentic to each genre. Know each genre first. Then put them together. That's how it's authentically, it becomes together and you can hear those ingredients in the right way because you're doing it, you've you've given each, it, each its time. Because sometimes that's a misconception. What was the point where you knew, okay, I can take these standards or these things that I've learned, these kind of base level skills, and then start to improvise and and have it work? Listen, I know how to read music. I know I could probably follow my way on a piano, but I don't know how to then start creating on a piano. I think the creating part came from church, really, um, because mm. my my the churches I went to that I played for were very open and you know, the musicians were my friends from school anyway. You know what I mean? So we would take church tunes and you know, shout out to Kirk Franklin, first of all, because, <laughs> you know, I grew up in, in the Kirk Franklin days. He was like, for us, the first one to, like, add secular music to the gospel and make it work and really make it cross over. No doubt. I was mixing jazz tunes with gospel tunes at the Catholic church I played for. I played for a Catholic church. Really? And the Baptist church I played for. Absolutely. Catholic church I played for was amazing. I never forget it was St. Mark's, and the director, Kim Roy, was amazing. She was a jazz singer. She passed away recently, but her husband, Derek Roy, an amazing bass player, and they love jazz, and the priests love jazz. So they would let us, like, change up the songs and make them jazz and do all these things to it. We used to go to Baptist church conventions, hmm. and when all the choirs sing, it was like a movie. And they would go, St. Mark, they would call us up. St. Mark's Catholic Church. And everybody would be like, what? <laughs> we would go there and mollywop all them choirs, Jack. Kill them. <laughs> they'd be stunned what we're doing. Like, what in the world? You know what I mean? Like, seriously. Like, we would... <laughs> Announcing a Catholic choir at something like that uh, would be like like having like, the Woody Harrelson moment in White Man Can't Jump. Like, <laughs> exactly. That's you exactly know? what it was. <laughs> 
just walking on the court like, this dude can't play. <laughs> That's exactly what it was, bro. It was crazy. So I did that in my Baptist church, too, at the college church. So that was kind of a part of my just thing. Like, mixing stuff was normal to me. And then I would do it with jazz, and you know? And, and then with cover tunes, it was like, the key is keeping the key elements of the song that people know and love, but changing things around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the key. Because some people change things so much, it's not the same song anymore. You've done a lot of screen work recently, you know, with, uh, I guess, you know, Run the World and uh, the Photograph. And now uh, the new sh- the new Peacock show, Bel Air, uh, the revisiting of Fresh Prince. Um, it's not so much about, like, how does this stuff come to you? Because I'm, I'm getting an idea that people get to know who you are. They want to come to you. But, like, what does that form do for you creatively? Um, it's just a different avenue. It's, it, it allows me to use my music in a different way. I've always heard that my music is cinematic. People have always said that. They're like, yo, you should do, you've moved, do you do movies? I was like, no, you know, they're like, your music is very, very cinematic. You know what I mean? So I was like, okay, well, let me just use that because I've used my music so long in the same way. You know what I mean? And this is just another mm-hmm. kind of way to do it. It requires a lot more discipline because you're on somebody else's time. You have to try to paint the picture that they want to tell. Mm-hmm. So it's not about me. It's not about what I think. And so it's just it's training me in, in a, to just have to do things a completely different way than normal. Right. I love that. I love to be. I love the challenge. I love to be challenged. And of course, film is. It's uh, there aren't many. You know black composers in the film world right it's great to be one of them that's doing it and and you know i want to continue it and flesh it out and see what i can do see what i can get in there and change and so more people like me can get in there you know what i mean and and uh it's just a great opportunity and living in la is what brought it on you know what i mean like that's Mm. this is where it happened this is where it is so this this was one of the reasons why I moved to LA. I'm like, hey, if you're hungry, you gotta move, you gotta move, you gotta go where the fridge is. You gotta go where the food is. Right. And people don't necessarily, I mean, having lived in LA, people don't necessarily think about LA as being this great hub for musicians uh, mm. that it is. I mean, I'm wondering how, like, say, Dinner Party, that project from 2020 comes together. Um, you know, you're working with Kamasi Washington and, and Terrence, mm-hmm. Terrence Martin, and I know that mm-hmm. you'd ha- done a previous project with them. That kind of stuff, what does that offer you creatively, those kinds of collaborations that are kind of aside from your Black radio pieces? I love it. It's just another another uh, color on the palette. You know what I mean? Like it's, uh, and all those guys are amazing musicians, artists, geniuses. They're, they're, they're super dope. And, you know, I, if I work, I've worked with Terrace for years. You know what I mean? That's one of my best friends. I'm, I met Terrace in, when I was 15 years old at jazz camp. There's wow. so many jazz camp stories. I was about to say, so like, is, <laughs> let's talk about jazz camp. Let's talk. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> like for real. Like I met him at a different jazz camp. That's where I actually met him and this other amazing trumpet player, Keon Harrell. Wow. Yeah. So I've known Terrence for a long time, but we made this. We made dinner party during the pandemic. Mm. Let's do something that we can just send files to each other and get it done. And that's how we did it. You know, and it was like an EP short. And he was like, let's just make a short statement. I threw stuff on there. Terrace threw stuff on there. Kamasi threw it on there. Boom, boom, bam. It was easy and fast. Wow. Getting back to the scoring, I mean, of course, one of the, I think the first film you scored was uh, Miles Ahead, the Miles Davis biography yeah. uh, starring yeah. Don Cheadle. I know that you did this movie in part because you admired Miles Davis so much. Can you tell me a little bit about why that is? I mean, Miles, I've been, I've always loved Miles because he always gave everybody the middle finger all the time. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, he's a walking middle finger for sure. Like, he was just, he was, he was a genius. He was a master at, especially he was a master at, he knew that it was important to be relevant all the time and change with the times in a genre that doesn't necessarily uh, do that. They did that to a certain point, but then stopped. Jazz changed into a certain point then it kind of stopped evolving miles mm-hmm. always kept evolving you know what i mean all the way up to the hip-hop era you know what i mean right right that few people talk about that i feel like yeah in his influence on hip-hop yeah miles miles was making a hip-hop record in night in the 90 early 90s so miles was always like when people came to him like hey can you play this play that from the old stuff he would be like that's what cds are for 
that that's what records are for. <laughs> you can go back and play them. You know what I mean? But right. he, he always kept it moving and he was always about change and innovation. And that's inspiring to me. Miles had a record called uh, Miles Around the World. I used to listen to when I was in college, I mean, high school. And he did Human Nature on air. He did Time After Time, you know, just doing tunes that I loved. And I was like, wow, you can do that in jazz? And it's cool, you know what I mean? Like, he always did the things that you were not supposed to be able to do. And he did them. He was like, yeah, now what? And that's what that was inspiring. So when Don Cheadle hit me up about doing the music for the Miles Ahead movie, I was like, oh my gosh, of course, hell yeah. I lied. He was like, you ever did movies? I was like, yep. <laughs> sure have. I did one yesterday. It was crazy. But, um... <laughs> You know, I, I didn't never did it before, and I just kind of took a crash course and learned, kind mm-hmm. of on the spot. The cool, there's a cool story. When I was started doing the Miles Ahead movie, I was on tour. I started. He asked me to do it. Three mm-hmm. days later, I was I was already going on the piano duo piano tour with this amazing pianist named Jason Moran. Oh yeah. So we do this duo piano tour in Europe, and. I have my computer, with, with, I got Logic on there, and I'm going, I just learned how to do Logic. So I'm learning how to score on Logic. And at the same time, Jason's scoring Selma. Whoa. While we're on the road. So we would do our piano concerts, and then that night, go to the hotel. He would go work on Selma, I go work on Miles Ahead. <laughs> wow. Yeah, man. talking about Don Cheadle, uh, it makes me think about the the comedy that y'all have had on on some of these albums. Uh, you know, it's like, if you didn't know any better, like, you would think he didn't like you. Exactly. Uh, but, <laughs> but exactly. I'm, uh, you know, you got, uh, you know, Wayne Brady on, on, on yep. another album, you know, whole, you know yep. all kinds yep. of stuff yep. happening. And I'm curious to know, you know, I'm seeing you live you know, uh, not just in Alabama, but also in L.A. And knowing that comedy is a part of your performance. Yeah. Um, how important is that to have on the albums? And in, 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 I also want to ask you, why is it so absent from Black Radio 3? Yeah, because I love comedy. That's I, that's I think if I wasn't a, a musician, I'd probably be, well, a model. That's obvious. But after that, I'd probably be... Uh, <laughs> A, a comedian. <laughs> so I love having fun. I love doing that. And, and But here's the thing. Like, the last Black Radio album was 2012. The music business has changed so much since then. The platforms have changed so much. Everything's playlist-driven. And now interludes, even putting an interlude on your album is different. And it, it's it's way more complicated now because now you, whatever track the interlude's on, the people that's on the main track have to share the publishing of that interlude now. Ooh. You know what I mean? Because it's on the same track, which in before that, that wasn't a thing. So what I decided to do was, let me know what, because I had some comedy interludes on there, as some music interludes on there. But what we ended up saying we're going to do, we're going to put out a, Black Radio 3 um, extended album, which will include all those things. And I like extended albums anyway, because it gives it a new life. It gives the whole album new life once I put it out later, you know, so. Right, of course, of course. I will look forward to the extra version. But uh, as far as like getting your audience to laugh, so you're, you're doing live performance. You, you mentioned, <laughs> you know, not knowing if you would bomb on, on a live stream. You ever bomb in a, in a show? Absolutely. But I don't care because I have a piano. I'm sitting. I'm sitting at a piano, so that gives me the confidence. Because if I didn't have a piano, if my job was to make you laugh, if you're pay, if you pay tickets for me to make you laugh, it would affect me more. But I right. know for sure that that's not my job to make you laugh, and you didn't pay for that either. It's extra. If you laugh, that's extra. So if I, I've, I've definitely told some jokes or said comments, and it was crickets. For sure. <laughs> and I'll be like, okay, next song, <laughs> you know, <laughs> cue it up. And, and wait, honestly, but seeing like seeing it live, it reminded me of like almost like how the actual radio is, you know? So mm. it's like mm. replicating that black radio experience because, you know, black radio is, is obviously much more than the music. It's definitely talk. 
Yeah. And and definitely people making you laugh, a lot, lot of personality. When did you know that personality was going to be such a big part of your performance and your music? When people would just, because I didn't know how to separate it. I just, I feel comfortable on stage. You know what I mean? And I'm I'm funny in real life. Everybody has been telling me that since I was a little kid. My whole family's funny. My, my mom was hilarious. My dad's hilarious. My aunt, my whole family's hilarious. Mm-hmm. So I just come from that. I felt like I had a leg up on all the jazz guys when I would do my shows because I'm funny. Jazz people take their shit too seriously. You know what I mean? And just and the next song mm-hmm. is and you know, and try to always teach you and give you history on everything. It's like, yo, that's too much, bro. You know, it's too much. And it it was different. My approach was just different than other jazz shows. And and I, I realized, yo, me being who I am works. Let, let me just do that all the time. Right. Because then it's just it's who I am, that's working, plus the music, that's working. And that 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 equals a great show. I learned that a while ago. Like that equals a, a good show. Me just being who I am. You know, people yeah. literally leave who they are off off stage a lot of times and become something else and then become back who they are when they get off, st- you know, and all that stuff. So I got time to do all that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Well, listen, I could take up your whole day talking about this stuff, man. I just <laughs> really wanted to say I appreciate you. Uh, taking some time uh, out of the schedule and uh, to talk with us and good luck with the album man. thank you man appreciate you so much Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, please let us know. If there's room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. And If you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, and everyone you think might benefit from it. And please be sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And come back next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. Conversations.